Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I'm so glad that you are here today. I'm still, I cannot get past that music. I swear, every time I'm like, I'm going to just do push-ups right now. Maybe I'll just do some sit-ups too. Like, I'm going to go to the gym and get a membership right now because that music is just so amazing. All right. Anyways, so thanks for being here today. Today we're going to wrap up a series we began at the um, beginning of this month called No Offense. And um, as you, I'm going to kind of call out a moment inside of that little like video bumper. There's this moment where it's flashing back and forth with this woman carrying the Stop the Lies and this mask and unmasked and it's kind of this fundamental like tension that that little moment creates inside. And through this entire series, I've talked about you and me and what we should do, right? How we should be peacemakers, how we should be thoughtful, how we should be reflective. But I haven't talked about the other side of me, the other side of you. Those people, those people who make us angry, those people who get us frustrated. And that's what I want to lean into today and deal with because that's the other part of the equation. And to kick us off, I want to tell you one of the most embarrassing stories and one of the most embarrassing moments of my life, Um, one that I partially regret knowing that this is the internet and that one day this can be replayed again. Um, But here we go. So uh, about 15 years ago, I was a student pastor. I worked with, um, I was in a larger church, so I worked with a pretty substantial size student ministry. And one of the things that we did within that student ministry is we would um, kind of create these events. And I like creating events. It's something that's kind of a passion for me. Uh, We once simulated homelessness for a group of high school students that they had no clue was coming. And we lived in a cardboard box and served in homeless shelters and ate food out of trash cans. I mean, it was incredible. Um, And it was a really powerful, life-shaping moment. Another experience, we literally built a third-world shack and loaded in dirt and had students kind of experience what life would have been like in the rest of the world. So this is something I really enjoy. Um, I'm giving you the highlights of what I grew into before I stepped into this role, I'm not telling you about the moments prior to that where I thought I had a good idea, and that's what I want to talk about today. So, um, uh, it's about 15 years ago, and I decide I want to take a group of students on a mountain retreat. And for the game, like on a Saturday afternoon, we, I'd normally do a game. I was like, I want to do a scavenger hunt, but no, 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 not a normal scavenger hunt. I want the volunteers that we have to disguise themselves. We'll go into this huge outdoor mall in this mountain town, and these teams of students will compete by walking up to individuals who are the leaders who are disguised that they recognize and saying, hey, I found you. And they would get signatures, and and this would be an amazing thing. And then we'd end at the Hard Rock Cafe for lunch um, in that town. So I was so pumped. Now, my wife will tell you that I have a problem. Um, I have a problem called go big or go home. Um, and that the thought is like, well, if you're going to do this, you're going to do this right. So my thought was if I'm going to do disguise, then I better do a disguise right. So, I mean, I was going to costume shops. I was going to hair places to figure out what a wig would, would look like and how do you do a wig, how do you do facial hair kind of things. I mean, I created genius. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what my wife said, too, when she saw it. 
Actually, you know what my wife realized the first time she met me? She didn't even recognize me when I walked up to her and I was dressed like this. Um, what my wife realized in that moment was that she had just married a man who was only about three or four life decisions from becoming the Tiger King. Um, I think that was probably my wife's first thought, had the Tiger King been around. But no, no, so I am so pumped about this because no one is going to recognize me. Um, you wouldn't recognize me if I walked up to you dressed like that. And I was like, none of these students will. So I venture out into this outdoor mall, and I have this moment of panic because I'm inside of a store, and there across from me in the aisle is another man who looks exactly like this. And I realize, holy moly, he might think I'm picking on him. I really didn't imagine anyone would look like this. So I quickly left that store and went into another store and then bumped to another store. And as I'm walking across the outdoor walkway to the next store, I see another man who looks exactly like this. And I'm like, holy crap, there's a convention here today. What am I going to do? Because now... I know there are two people who look exactly like what I'm dressing like to be funny, and they call it Saturday. By the time I make it to Hard Rock Cafe, I never got caught, by the way, which I am quite proud of. By the time I make it to Hard Rock Cafe, I am like in like sweats because I was terrified that someone was going to see me dressed like this who was dressed like this and think that I was picking on them. I realized the moment I saw the first guy, and by the time I got to the third guy, it was completely, I was absolutely convinced that everything about how I was dressed was now offensive. And that it was just one moment away of a guy locking eyes with me and smelling that this is not what I dress like most days, and instantly it turning to conflict. It was kind of the first time I grew up being picked on, but I never really had a moment growing up where I w had the deep awareness that everything I'm doing right now could easily be offensive to someone if they knew why I was doing it. It was one of those immature moments in my life where I had no clue. And here's today's message. I want to talk about the two types of moments in our lives um, where we end up being offended or we are the offended one, the offensive one. Now, the reason I give you this story is because this story as, as vomit-inducing as I look at that moment in my like, disguise, I um, realized I had unintentionally offended. Because some offense is unintentional. You don't intend to do it, but nonetheless, you end up being it. And then there's another type of offense where you're intentionally offensive. You're a jerk. You're mean, condescending. Your claws came out, right? Those are the two scenarios, those are two situations that I want to talk about today, whether you're on the receiving end or whether you're the one giving it. But here are the two scenarios I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the toxic ones, the ones that are the consistent, persistent relationships in your life. I'm not talking about that person. That person is going to be a little bit out, outside of the bounds of what we're going to press into today. Those people need boundaries. Those people need a little bit more confrontation and a little bit more direction. Um, there's a different course that I would sit down with you and talk through if we were dealing with someone who was doing toxic things in your workplace or in your home life. 
And nor am I talking about those troubled individuals who verbally, physically, sexually abuse. Okay? The, the course for that is different too because that's called illegal. And the way you deal with that is through legal means and other means. Okay, so I just want to put that on the shelf because I don't want you to draw from what we talk about today and apply it to these scenarios because um, these aren't the ones I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the troubled individuals and I'm not talking about the toxic ones. What I'm talking about is the run-of-mill everyday life where you don't wake up that day intending to offend, but you did or you were offended. And to, to kind of process that and those moments when we are intentionally offensive, I want to take you to a moment where all this plays out in uh, ancient Israel about 2,800 years ago. And in the course of this playing out, what you'll find is even though the scenario seems so distant from our situations, the reactions are strangely similar. And so I'm going to take you through a part of a book that was originally a two-volume set called 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel was named after Samuel, who was one of the most religious, um, kind of one of the most influential, influential religious thought leaders, prophets in ancient Israel. Because Israel in that point in history was a theocracy, God was their king, a prophet was not just a religious person who could talk and kind of give messages on behalf of God, they were also um, political figures, they had power in the culture, and Samuel was one of those individuals who had the distinct honor of blessing and coronating the first two kings of Israel. And so the books are named after him, and they mainly focus in on the first two kings, Saul and David. And what I want to do today is take you to a moment in 1 Samuel that's primarily focused on David and an interaction that David has. At this point that we're about to step into, David is a future king. He knows he's going to one day be the king of Israel, but right now the current king sees him as a threat, and his life is spent living on the run. And so he's disconnected from family. He's riding around with a band of people who follow him, a group of warriors. And it's in this moment, in this stage and season of David's life that I want us to kind of step into because it's in this moment that we actually find some really helpful advice for us in this no offense life. So the, the, the story begins with the central character being Nabal or Nabal, however you want to say his name. And Nabal is a wealthy man. He has 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which was shearing in Carmel. So, like, I recognize in our day and age, we don't see 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep and instantly think Tesla, Maserati, and large house with a vacation home and a beach house. But this is what we're looking at. This guy is loaded. He has 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep. That's what he would have bragged about. Now, we also know that he's a Calebite. And he was surly and mean in his dealings. So we get a little bit of the introduction about this character before we step in. And he's just not a pleasant guy. He's a jerk. And it says that David was in the wilderness. So the wilderness was this um, somewhat desert-like place that was adjacent to where Nabal is. And he's living in that desert wilderness area with his band of brothers there's about 600 of them and and he knows that right now this is shearing sheep time this is the time of year that happened twice a year for the uh, shepherding cultures 
It was an incredibly festive time. It was a very lucrative time. This is essentially like dividend season. This is profits being paid out. This is national lampoons, Christmas vacation. I'm going to get a bonus and I'm going to build my pool for my kids kind of moment, okay? Like this is a really financially like festive celebration. Happened twice a year. David, because he grew up raising sheep, knows that. And so he reaches out knowing that Nabal is doing that. He sends 10 young men to say to go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Why is he saying greet him in my name? Is it just because David is the future king and he's one of the most famous people in the day? That's one reason. But there's a reason at the beginning of 1 Samuel 25 we find out that Nabal was a Calebite. It's because David is in the same family as Nabal. They're kin to each other. They're distant relatives. And so there is a familial thing here that's playing out in this passage. And so the men go and they say, now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of them was missing. Ask your servants and they will tell you. So David's like, okay, here's what you're going to say. You're going to ask for all this in my name. And you're going to tell him, hey, remember that point in time when your sheep were over near us? And none of them disappeared. Okay, so in a nomadic culture, uh, shepherds would roam. They would go into different fields. They would take and drive their animals to different grasslands and places that were important. And one of the issues that would often happen, besides wild animals trying to come in and kill your, your herds, another issue you would have would be foreign invaders or thieves. And this was a common occurrence. So losing a sheep or a goat was something that happened regularly. And it was a financially devastating thing. And so what ends up playing out is David, while he was camped in one area with 600 of his men, he knows intimately what it's like to be a, to be a shepherd. And so he makes sure that none of his men mess with this man's herd. And he goes beyond that and he says, hey, make sure you look out for them. Make sure everything goes okay. And that's what he does. And so he loses none of them the entire time. They were kind to them. They were gracious to them. And so, therefore, be favorable towards my men. Since we came at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. And then they waited. Now, this is an interesting turn because... This is not something you do in a culture of hospitality. We're 2,800 years removed, but you need to understand, in this society, in this culture, hospitality was a very big deal. If someone shows up to your house um, that you don't know and knocks, you typically turn off your lights, you hide on the floor, or you tell them through your ring camera that you're not interested, please leave my doorstep. In this culture, if someone came to your door and they knocked and you didn't know them, you typically invited them in and provided for them. This was a culture built around the hospitality. And so the fact that he's making them wait is already kind of a, this would be like where the music turns and gets a little ominous in the story. And then we find out why. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? And I want to be like, who told you he was Jesse's son? I thought you didn't know David. Bam, mic drop, right? Like, 
They didn't come and say, hey, we're the son of Jesse. David's like, well, how do you know we're the son of Jesse? Mm-hmm. You know who I am. Right? Like, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? This guy knows who he's talking about. He's a fool. Many servants are breaking away from their master these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to the men coming from who knows where? And David's men turned around and went back. I mean, Nabal was a jerk. He's like, who is this David? I don't even know who David is, son of Jesse. Like a moron. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to the men, each one of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his own as well. And about 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. So David's men come back and they're like, here's what he said. He basically gave us the middle finger. Essentially what happened. And so David said, all right. Mount up. Let's go. Put your swords on. David wasn't going to have some kind of like negotiation. David wasn't going to, you know, maybe speak to the better side. No, he was grabbing his sword and putting it on his side because David had been offended and he was going to war. He was going to slaughter every single person in that household. David was angry. And this is an interesting uh, fact that we find out. David strapped on his as well. You know what David's sword was? David had a unique sword in all of Israel because David, when he killed Goliath, took Goliath's sword as his own. So David's sword was huge. I mean, this thing was like, in a world of like knives, this thing was a lightsaber, okay? Like it was massive and it was strong and it was unique. And so the fact that David puts his sword on as well, everybody in the room is like, whoa, Man, this thing just got escalated. He's not sending us. He's going with us with his own sword. And it's applied. He's going to be the one who's going to kill Nabal. And so we find out a couple verses later that David, as he's going up and he's talking to his men, it's recorded that David says, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that none of his stuff was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Now, this is a really weird way of talking in today's language. But what you need to understand is this is essentially the equivalent of like this Braveheart moment where David is speaking to his men and he is saying to them, we will kill them all. Look what they did to us. Look how they ridiculed us. Look at the kindness that we showed them. He's framing the whole argument. And a good versus evil. And guess which side he's on? The good side. Now, that seems strangely familiar, doesn't it? Whenever we have an issue, whenever we have a conflict with someone, we don't frame it as two differing opinions. If, right after you get married, if you're currently married, you probably had this moment, right? When I do marriage counseling, I say this frequently, um, especially if it's premarital counseling. It's not wrong. It's different. It's not, it's not wrong how they load the dishwasher. It's not wrong how they squeeze the toothpaste. It's not wrong how they, you know, fold their clothes. It's different. And now some of you, I know, you're like, no, it's wrong. It's just flat out wrong. That's, they need to learn how to do it right. right. But <laughs> the reality is, is that this isn't like, oh, it's wrong. It's, this is, it's just different. It's not wrong. No, this is, they were wrong. I was right. They are evil. I am good. I am smart. They are dumb. Right? 
And we do this when it comes to conflict. We do it at work. We do it at home. We do it with our kids. We do it when we watch the news. They're idiots. They're morons. They're backwards. Fill in the blank. We have a label for them, and it's usually the evil one, and we're the good side fighting for righteousness and justice and truth. We're the ones defending it. This is what David's doing. He's rallying his troops, and he's framing the whole narrative through the lens that they're right, he's wrong, and we're about to fix this problem. And everything about this story right now is predictable. Because this is what happens in situation after situation every single day of our lives. We get mistreated, we get wronged, we get offended, or we are offended, and we instantly throw it into a frame of good versus evil, right versus wrong, and we go adversarial. I mean, you think about how we even talk about um, dialogue or, or arguments. We frame it in, in like war terms. We frame it in this conflict-orientedness. This is what's playing out. Everything about David's response is completely predictable. Someone slaps you, you slap them back. Someone wrongs you, you tell them a little piece of your mind. Someone offends you, you make sure you offend them back. And you cut them down the sides. Right? And so why is this story in the Bible if this is predictable? It's because what happens next is not. And it's this portion of the passage I'm going to read through, and then I'm going to pull out some principles for you and me that can give us a playbook so that we don't have to have predictable moments when it comes to conflict, when it comes to being offended or being the ones who get offended. And so there's a character in this story. Her name is Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. If you were to kind of notice in the, the original language of the day when this was written, um, she's actually displayed with intentional verbiage. She's the opposite of her husband. And, I mean, most guys who have any sense, they, they, they recognize they married up. I totally married up. This dude didn't even just marry up. Like, he married in, like, completely, like, solar system kind of way. Like, he got someone who wasn't even on the same planet as him of quality. And, and so she hears about this. She, she finds out what happens. These ten men, these people, they're, they're there. They're, they're turned away from Nabal. He's, he's a jerk to them. And Abigail has enough sense to realize that her husband has just told the future king and his armed band of mercenaries that they're not going to feed them even after they've done kind things for them. So Abigail says, okay, we've got to do something. And so she loads up a donkey, and then another donkey, and another donkey. She puts enough food in there to feed over 400 people on the donkeys. This is why David got so offended in the first place, because David knew she had resources. Because it was festive time. It was the festival time. It's like Thanksgiving, right? When you have a Thanksgiving meal, you can eat for days. And so she has all of this food. That is extra. So she puts it on the donkeys and she heads out hoping to stop them before they come back and kill them all. So this is where we pick up. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. She has a completely different tone. Very deferential. 
She's assuming the best about David because she's treating him like the future king he's going to be. She's bowing at his feet because that's what you do to the king in this world. You bow. And then she continues, Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means folly, and folly goes with him. She's like, look, I married an idiot. And it wasn't a secret. And you've got to pay no attention to him. Because he's foolish, and whatever he does, and wherever he goes, foolishness oftentimes follows him. And she's, she's just saying, and as for me, my lord, your servant, I didn't see the men that you sent. She's like, had those ten men came to me, this would not have happened. She's like, I, she's like, I want to recognize, I want you to know I recognize how wrong this is. So she says, now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be lightenable. She's like, so deferential at this point. She's treating him way different than he is currently in that moment as the man who has a sword strapped to his side who's come to kill every man who lives in that house. She's even saying, the Lord has kept you from bloodshed. He's like, I'm here. I'm, I'm intervening. And she continues. She says, and let this gift, all of this food that's currently behind me, which your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. I mean, need I remind you, there are 400 men with swords attached to their side who've come to kill. Like wrongdoing is literally the ride that they've signed up and lined up for. But she's, she's assuming the best about them. She's assuming and reminding him that he fights the Lord's battles. This isn't the Lord's battle. This is stupid. This is about you not sharing food. Someone not sharing food with you. This isn't God's battle. This is your battles, David. Like, but I know who you are, David. You're, you're a better man than that. You fight the Lord's battles. Have you ever noticed when you treat people and act towards them the way that you know they could be, they typically rise up to that. I watch all these documentaries about how teachers stepped in or how a nurse or a parent believed in their kid and then their kid rises and ends up doing, you know, fill in the blank or they, they're able to get out of a really rough situation. And they, when they always tell their story, they always tell the story about one person who believed in them. And I just wonder, like, could that be the normal if there were just more people who believed in people and assumed the best about them, is it possible that maybe that storyline wouldn't be exceptional if we just could recognize the exceptional that's in everyone and call that out? I don't know. Maybe. But Abigail seems to see that. And she's assuming the best and she's calling out the best. She's not going in assuming the worst, which is oftentimes what we do in these kind of moments. Right? We, as in sociology, they call it the fundamental attribution error. It's when um, you're driving on the road, somebody cuts you off. Um, they're an idiot. They're a moron. They don't know how to drive. But when you cut someone off, it's because you're running late or you got an appointment you need to get to or your kid's sick at the school. So it's just circumstantial, but for them it's a character flaw. 
right? And this is, she's, she's doing the opposite. She's saying, no, no, you fight the Lord's battles. I'm assuming the best about you, not the worst about you. And so she approaches him. And what we see in this passage is, is a few things that I think get really practical. She assumes the best. And notice that she goes to him. David is coming to destroy the home. She goes to bridge the divide. She's not there to burn it. She's not there to destroy it. She's come to bridge it and to help cover the gap that her husband helped to create. That when we assume the best in those conflict moments, even when we've been the ones offended, when we are willing to do for them what we would hope they would do for us, instead of your husband being completely careless and not caring about you and the family because he didn't stop and get milk, which you texted him four times to do, that maybe your thought frame is like, well, look, I know you've had a busy day, and I know you had a lot going on, and I probably don't even know half of what you dealt with. So, look, I, I really was depending on you to get the milk, but I understand. I w- it's like versus you never, you never do what I tell you to do. You never listen to me. But assuming the best and bridging the divide, as, as a general rule of thumb in my life, I had a mentor say this to me one time, and I thought this was genius. He said, most of the people we have conflict with, um, most of those people, we want them relationally to stay in our lives. But our default is to become arsonist. And we'll burn a bridge in a heartbeat. And he's like, just make it your goal in life. That when you have conflict for one, they may try to burn their end, but don't burn yours. Because if you're assuming the best, you believe one day they're going to come to their senses and they're going to want to walk back across. And if you've burnt the bridge, they won't have anything to walk on or walk across. And so I have a whole series of bridges in my life. If I was being real with you and I was sitting down with you face to face and I could talk names, I have a whole series of people in my life where that, that road is closed there's still a bridge there. And my hope is, the reason I didn't burn that bridge, is because I hope one day they're going to come to their senses and they're going to decide they want to come back across that bridge. And when they get there, they find that the bridge is still there. This is why Abigail said she wasn't an arsonist. She wasn't burning it. She was bridging the divide. And notice that she comes to change the wrong into the right. She acknowledges the wrong and she wants to make it right. Now, if you were offended... That's normally not your scenario, but if you were the one who was offending, you were the one who did the wrong, then this is one of those things that we miss. I think 12-step programs get this really right. And that oftentimes, if you really want to restore something, restoring isn't just simply saying, I'm sorry, and you move on. It's I'm sorry, and you fix what you broke. And, and what you need to know is when you wrong something, The right is always, always more expensive than the cost of the wrong. So automatically assume when you are fixing that wrong into the right, add an interest charge to it. That's what Abigail does. She shows up. She doesn't have just a little bit of food. If you want to read the full story, because there's so much text, I've tried to like skim through the story as much as I can. Go back and read how much food she brings. It's clear she was going above and beyond. 
those men were just asking for food. She shows up ready to throw them a feast. Because when you're going to right a wrong, you want to make sure you're paying it back with interest because the wrong appreciated and the damages. And then the thing that I think is also helpful that we see her do is she's direct. She's very direct. I mean, right? She's like, look, my husband was an idiot. What was done was wrong. But also simultaneously humble. Please pardon your servant. Please forgive us. Like there is a directness and a humility. And I think in any really good conflict resolution kind of way, you've got to be direct. You have to speak from, right, what we talked about a couple weeks ago. You have to speak from that personal, I felt hurt when you said. We use those I frames. And notice that she's very intentionally being like, we were wrong. What we did was wrong. We want to fix that wrong. She's not dancing around it. She's not skirting. She's not kind of ignoring She's being direct. But this isn't all. What we see is that she continues. She says, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord would be boundly secure in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as he is from the pocket of a sling. That is a direct. She's like doing a callback on David's life because the way David killed Goliath was with a sling. He kills him with a sword, technically, chops off his head. The sling actually hits David, makes, makes Goliath fall to the ground, and that's when, shoom, finish him. But the pocket of the sling was the mechanism that David used to defeat Goliath. So she's, she's not just assuming the best. She is calling out the best. I mean, it's incredible what she is saying to him. And so when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. So as she keeps rolling along in this thing, she's, she's starting to paint for us a, a bigger picture of, of the moment. She's pulling David out of the moment. She takes him to his very beginning. Hey, remember the journey that started this whole kingship thing for you? The moment you killed Goliath? Like, you remember that beginning, how God used you then? And now she's like over here with the Z part of it. And she's like, hey, and one day you're going to be the king and you're going to step into that moment. She's seeing the bigger picture. Because what happens in uh, moments where we get offended or we're the ones offending is it's typically very emotionally driven. It's very short-sighted oriented. It's all about the moment. And Abigail understands something. She understands eventually the moment becomes a story. And she's like, my Lord, David, one day you're going to be the king. And you don't want to have in your storyline a part of the story that you want to skip over. Because it's like, oh, well, let's celebrate David. Oh, well, let's talk about how the time David and his merry men went and killed a whole family of people because they didn't give him rich crackers and cheese when he asked for it oh yeah our king is great but you know minus the whole you know complete devastating genocide of that one family and he's like she's like you don't want that in your storyline and what abigail understood is eventually the moment becomes a story and you and i have a choice in those moments are we going to tell a story that's predictable they did evil to me so i did evil back They hurt me, so I hurt them. They offended me, so I made sure I offended them. No, the story she's trying to cast for David is David, 
let's tell a remarkable story. Because one day you're going to be the king. One day you're not going to be a teenager living in your parents' home. One day you're not going to be a single woman trying to navigate this season or a marriage that feels like it's falling apart or in a place where you're questioning the finances or your current job. Like One day you will not be defined by this moment you're in. But what you do in this moment will define the type of story that you tell. And that's why it matters. Are you going to tell one that's predictable the one that everyone's heard before? Or are you going to tell one that's remarkable? One that talks about the grief and the loss, but how you rose up from that grief and that loss to build something beautiful and to restore something great. Which story are you going to tell? And David's response to her was, may you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. He says to her, Abigail, thank you. Because had there not been an Abigail, this would have been a predictable story and we would have never probably even heard it. Because David would have gone into that household and we completely destroyed all of those people. But one person literally changed the storyline of David's life. This one woman redirects history. Now, I just think it's worth asking, just to, as a side note, do you have an Abigail in your life? Because I don't know about you, but I read this story, and I really want to have an Abigail in my life. Someone who cares about the story that I'm trying to live enough that when they see me going off script, they call it out. Of someone who, when they notice me starting to make choices and decisions, is willing to remind me who I am and who I could be. Not just recognize me in my worst moment. For some of you, you're really fortunate. You have an Abigail and it's called mom or dad. The reality is, is that we don't just need an Abigail in our life while we're growing up. We need one at every stage and every season of our life. Someone who who reminds us of the best in us and the best part about us and the storyline that God can tell through us and who hangs that in front of us in the moments when we've forgotten it. As a church, that's something, as a pastor, that I want for you, that I want for me because I recognize how often my storyline would have been taken offline had I not had one or two people step in. That's why even this, this past week we've been planning and and. Um, working on kind of the next six months as we were like, all right, we're, here's, here's where we are with COVID and here's what realistically we're going to have to do. And one of the passions I have for you is that as a church, we want to help be an Abigail. We want to help connect you to Abigails. So we're doing things that we haven't done before and what we're working on. One of the things that we're working on this past week, in fact, was um, creating events, not events where I do embarrassing things like what I did before, but really good events where um, as, as women who are trying to navigate this pandemic and maybe specifically trying to figure out how, how do I manage my family and all that's happening in my life, or maybe a single woman is trying to figure out how do I navigate this season and where I am and where do I want to go in this next season. But we were like, well, you know what, let's, let's create events where women can come together and talk about topics that maybe um, just needs to be a woman discussion. 
so right now our team's working on um, a women's event this fall that I'm really excited about, where we're leaning into some of the conversations that are happening nationwide about what does it mean to, to be a woman and working in the midst of a pandemic and all the pressures that come with that. And I'm, I'm excited about what our team's working on. And then to say, well, what would it be like to get men together and do the same thing? And to, like with the women, like make it a little bit fun where we get to know one another and start to build relationships. Next fall, next spring, uh, late winter, we're working on a marriage retreat. Um, I, I've already told you, I went and got certified through the pandemic because one of the things I wanted to help you and me experience was a life that was well lived. So I, I got certified to be able to lead this church, lead people in this church through a process where they can discover with clarity why they were made and what a life well lived would look like as them and the uniqueness that God has stamped. God made you. When he created this world, he was like, there's not one of them. I'm going to make one of them. And he deposited inside of you things on purpose for a purpose. And I got certified in a process to help this church discover that purpose. Because this church, we want to be an Abigail for you. And that what we see Abigail do, I think we're invited to do for one another. And there's one last thing I'll leave you with, and then we're done, that I think is a little different. Abigail and David at the time didn't have this point. And everything I've given you so far works no matter who you are, no matter what you believe. So if you're not sure about the Christian thing, you can kind of like, you've got your notebook filled with practical wisdom that's going to make a difference in your life. But if you're a Christian, what I've given you is not optional this morning. If you're someone who follows Jesus, this is the choice you've made, this is the life that you live, then our lives look, look a little different. They're meant to look a little different. That those A, B, C, D, E are all the things that God expects our life to look like because of who Jesus was and what Jesus' life looked like. So the last thing I think practically for the Christians listening today is that one of the most powerful things that you and I can do is focus on the cross. Because on the cross, the worst possible thing was done to the best possible person. And that worst thing done, that worst thing that he endured, demonstrated through his life, through his resurrection, that God can still bring out the best possible result. That there is a hope that Jesus has, that the grace and the forgiveness that I've received from him makes me want to be gracious and forgiving to other people. Now, I'll be honest, I don't have to do this a lot because because of this, oftentimes I overlook offenses. Now, if it gets to a certain threshold where I've got to have a conversation, I've got to do this, then yes. But a lot of times I'm like, man, honestly, um, God is good. He's gracious. He's been so forgiving to me. And that was me catching them on their worst day. I've never met someone who was a cashier who told me, you know what? My life changed the day that I had a customer tell me how bad I was at being a cashier. If it wasn't for them, man, I don't know where I would be. Like, I've never met someone who works at Target who told me their testimony of their life story, and it, and it all involved a customer cussing at them because the price didn't line up with what they had before and how that made them really question everything. No. The stories that are remarkable are the ones where people are like, man, I met this person, and they were really nice to me even when I wasn't being nice to them. They were kind to me even when I wasn't kind 
to them. And where does that come from? I think that comes from us as a people who follow Jesus, focusing on what God did for us in spite of us. That God chose to love us, pursue us at our worst, at his best. And that changes us how we treat people when we meet them at their worst, too. And that intentional focusing on the cross, believing that God is the just one, that God is the one who's in control and in charge. I don't have to feel like I've got to fight my battles. You can't take love from me because I've never been more loved than I am right now in them. And you are never going to knock me down because you weren't the one holding me up in the first place. He was. And when you have that kind of confidence, security, hope, peace, joy, it changes how you respond in every moment. You can literally kind of just chuckle and be like, man, Chris without Jesus would have punched you in the face. But Chris with Jesus sees in your face the image of God and me recognizing that I'm catching you at your worst. And I'm going to treat you like you're the best. And that the beauty of focusing on the cross is it does change how we see the perspectives and the lives that we live. And so... We're going to be really practical as we wrap up this series today. In those moments when we've been offended and the moments where we are the offender, let's make sure that we step into those moments assuming the best, being intentional about bridging the divide. If we've wronged, make sure that we make it right with interest added because it's in our best interest to do so and theirs too. And to be direct and humble Realizing that the moment that we're currently in will one day be part of a story and that we're people committed to making it remarkable and ultimately for the Christians to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done. And in that, by doing any of those things, that it starts to become easier to move towards that life of no offense. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love and the hope that when we talk about the cross, when we talk about your forgiveness and your kindness to us, that it changes everything. Pray that you would help us to walk into that, to step into that. For those who aren't even sure about who you are, Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they would find you and follow you, that they would see that there is a better way, a way of forgiveness and hope and peace, and that it just simply comes with trusting you and what you've done for them. For those who know you and love you, Father, I pray that you would help us become people who very practically play out this peace-making playbook. May you give us, even in this moment, people who we maybe need to step into this conversation with. Maybe even in this moment, God, may you help us to find freedom by forgiving some people who've wronged us. And that we would feel a little lighter because of that. And for those, Father, who are dealing with maybe the different, the ones we didn't cover, the toxic or the troubled one, I pray that you would bring breakthrough, that you would bring people alongside of them, that you would bring Abigails into their lives, that you would give them wisdom to know how to navigate and to play out a different playbook, but one that's still ultimately rooted in your book. And thank you that you're a God who's gracious and love and mercy fills us up and is more than enough. 
And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being here today and for allowing me to kind of just unpack this remaining portion of this three-week series we did. Today we're going to wrap up with a new song, uh, one we haven't sung, that just I think ultimately is a reminder, is a declaration about the confidence that we have through God, through Jesus Christ, and His enoughness being enough. And it's just a declaration it, it, that He's got it. In the moments when you've been wrong, in the moments where it feels like it's never going to be right, that He's bigger than both of them. That His grace is larger than the, the pain. His peace is stronger than the grief. And that you really are more loved than you ever imagined, even right now. And that as a church, I want to say thank you for allowing us to be I'm going to talk about as a church committed to being an Abigail. I want to say, for those who call and count church home, who give generously, I want to say thank you. You allow us to be that Abigail for people, to step into their situations and circumstances, to serve and to give and to be a part of making a difference in their lives, in their situations, through the small interactions of how we're able to be in the kids' lives on Sundays and be a part of helping them understand who God is so that they grow up in that love or whether it's people who are walking through a season of life where they're not even sure God exists anymore and you provide the resources for us to walk alongside of them. And that maybe part of your declaration today is just recognizing that all along the picture of Abigail, of that person who's present with us, directing us to a better life is ultimately what God has tried to do and desiring to do even at this moment. And so I want to invite you to stand. Um, it's a new song.